3: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
4: You're listening to the podcast
1: from the
0: Word. Okay, we're ready. Welcome back. House lights down, please. Let's have some Atmos let's do a little bit of housekeeping before we go any further the next word in your ear is uh, it's not announced yet but it's on November the 17th and we're very fortunate we've got John Savage who's uh, written a, a new book about 1966 and we've got Howard Sounds who's written a book about uh, Lou Reed Howard Sounds who wrote a he was the man who found out that Bob Dylan had a love child that's it? right not a love child, married child, whatever yeah. okay um I have to think people often, people often say that music, it brings people together. I'm never, never entirely sure that it does, actually. It always seems to be, my experience, it's quite divisive. And so it's quite interesting to, do it, to be talking for the next half an hour or so about a musical subject that actually does sort of bring people together because John Peel was a person who, because he was part of everybody's lives regardless of what generation they belonged to for such a long period of time, uh that he he entered into their lives in all kinds of ways and and oddly enough sort of ended up kind of more famous than lots of the people whose music he played and um and we're talking about a book called good night and good riddance <laughs> how 35 years of john Peel helped shape modern britain um and we're joined by uh by, by Trevor Dan, who, who worked at Radio 1 for, for many years and, and knows his way around radio. Uh, and, uh, and also the author of the book, Dave Cavanagh. So, if you please uh, welcome, yeah. welcome them both. Yeah. So, Dave, let's we'll start with you. and you know, Just to follow that point, when did he first enter your life? Can you remember?
1: Uh, yeah, it was July 1976. Uh, but I read him before I heard him. I read him because he used to write for Sounds. Right. Uh, a newspaper about rock music, for those who don't remember it.
0: Um, we remember, Sam.
1: Um, and I, my, my dad had the idea in the summer of 76 that we would go on holidays on the lakes in Northern Ireland, the locks, and um, he would kind of steer a cabin cruiser around the locks while we kind of wore little life jackets and helped him. Um but actually I spent the whole holiday in the cabin, um the front cabin reading New Musical Express and sounds which I'd bought in a little in a John Menzies in Enniskillen on a foraging kind of grocery hunt trip. Um and I'd never seen anything like them in my life. I was I was eleven years old, I loved pop music, I was anxious to sort of know a bit more, like read about Proper bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, and I bought Enemy, well New Musical Express as I called it, and Sounds, and this man called John Peel wrote for Sounds, and I thought he was kind of an interesting-looking guy. Gar- I couldn't understand a fucking word he was on about because it was all written so ironically, as I later found out. But um, it was think, incredibly funny. Those well, not not to an, not to an eleven-year-old, believe me. <laughs> Frightening. Maybe just frightening. I, I, I prefer. I probably prefer the Jennings books at that point. Um, but I, I thought, well, I sh- you know, I need to hear him because I knew he was on Radio One at night. But in those days, Radio One closed down at seven and then sort of reopened at ten o'clock. So it wasn't a case of sort of leaving your radio on. It, it you know, Radio One stopped and it became Radio Two, and it wasn't kind of easy to to know when he'd be on. But the first time I heard him was about July seventy-seven. And he played. I think the first thing I remember him playing was "The Boys of the Loch." Thank, <laughs> thanks, mate. You know that's just what a twelve-year-old kid from Northern Ireland wants to hear. And then he played something by I think Prince Farai again. You know, over my head. Then he played the Sex Pistols, and I was very interested in the idea that this guy who I had in in my mind has been quite old. He was probably thirty-nine or thirty-eight, but to a twelve-year-old, that's very old. Uh, endorsed punk, um, endorsed reggae and endorsed Irish folk within the space of nine minutes, so that first show, even though i didn 't necessarily like those three pieces of music, gave me so much to think about that I probably thought it 's worth it 's right. worth persevering with this guy and by the end of seventy seven I was listening to him as many nights as I could stay awake for yeah
0: so when did he enter your life, Trevor, as a listener?
4: I listened to him on Pirate Radio London uh, when he arrived there in 1967. And my friend at school, Alan, and I were big fans of of John Peel because he just played all this weird stuff. And we didn't really know anything about him except he was different from Tony Blackburn and the other DJs. And then Alan came to school one day and said... John Peel's opening a fate at a girls' school just near where I live. Now, these are not the stories you tell Kino, Kino, to uh, uh, my learned friends. <laughs> yeah. Is there anyone from Utrea here? Um, uh, so uh, we found out where it was and we went along. And, uh, and there was John with the very long hair and the sandals, and he was opening the fete at this uh, public school for girls. And he did a little speech, which went basically like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Oh, we said we wouldn't do impersonations, no, no, did we? Do you, <laughs> <do you>. Yes, <laughs> yes.
2: thankfully you did Is that, Is yeah. that your impersonation? No, 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 it's finished now. He's Welsh! But he, he, <laughs>
4: he thanked us very much for coming and said he didn't know why he was there. And then he signed for me a copy of the programme for this fete, uh, which I still have to this day, which says,
2: love and peace, John Peel. Very good. Big hero.
0: Can you remember when you first... Oh, well, I've...
2: Again, this is the radio. You and I have talked about this times. There's things you can still remember when you described Emerson, Lake and Palmer as being a waste of talent and electricity. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> 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 I, really, I remember can remember him playing a, a thing in 1982. Uh, David Bowie had a, a, a single called Cat People, brackets, putting out fire. I can remember he said, to, uh, fire, one well, imagines being magic the name of the cat in question. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember him because he used to be on every festival when I was a kid. I went to every single rock festival. John P was always, I'm sure people remember, he was always the guy playing the records. And uh, at a Lincoln Festival, uh, a load of hippies set fire to a hayfield, and he said, uh, you're afraid from doing that, because if you were arrested,
0: we couldn't afford the bail, which I thought was hilarious, you know, I was 16 or something. Yeah.
2: But yeah, that's... Something. How about I, you? I,
0: you probably, I can you, remember, it must have been about 1968 or something like that, I can remember him playing Wheels of Fire, the live version of Crossroads by Cream, and said, for those of you who still think Eric Clapton's human... Have a listen to this, and I think he was being flattering. Yeah, he loved. In years later, he would probably have been ironical. You know, been I mean? using exactly the same the same kind of formal words. Really he loved.
1: He loved. He If there was one kind of untouchable god of Top Gear, it would have been Clapton. And he, it's weird because by '93, when he sat in for Jackie Brambles for that strange week on um, Radio One at lunchtime. Uh, <laughs>
2: It's unimaginable,
1: isn't it. it uh, he had he had the job of reading out the album chart, and uh, he got to and he said number five, Eric Clapton unplugged, if only. True. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you
1: should just explain the structure of your book. It's fascinating because you went back to is it in
2: Cavisham they have the, the. Where did you go? they've got explain what happened because you've got all the details of his programme.
1: Well, I started by you can hear you can hear about five or six hundred of them online you can find them and you can hear them you can download them you can save them you can do whatever you want with them catalog them they're there to hear they will give you a reasonable flavor of his shows from 67 to the final show he ever did there are gaps obviously and some of them are quite serious gaps and to fill those gaps you have to go to Cavisham where the BBC's written archive is stored on microfilm and there you can see the history of Radio 1 Day by day. So you thread in um, a spool of microfilm. uh, January 1971, for example, right? So Saturday morning, the 1st of January, will come up and it'll be Ed Stewpot Stewart presenting Junior Choice. And you will see three pages of every single record that he played and what labels they're on and how long they last. So you keep spooling and you get to Emperor Roscoe's show and then you get to whatever. Finally, you get to Top Gear in the afternoon, and then you can see Soft Machine, Vivian Stanshaw, um, Ivor Cutler, um, uh, Chris (laughs) McGregor's Brotherhood of Breath, all this stuff,
0: right? And that was middle of of Saturday afternoon, wasn't it, Trevor? Do I remember? Yeah, he he
4: started uh, on Radio 1 doing this show called Top Gear, produced by Bernie Andrews, which was on a Saturday afternoon, and he co-presented it... (laughs) What are the, are you, do you want to... No, you tell everybody. Okay, well, the, the, the clip that I brought is from the very first Top Gear. Oh, you've got one. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is to Peel with Pete Drummond, who is uh, second from the left in the front row with the Savile Row suit on. yeah. Third from one me of my too. favorite groups in the whole world that probably a great number of people have never heard of Captain Beefheart and his magic band and I'd like to play this one especially for Shirley with whom I saw this group in Los Angeles it's called Yellow Brick Road The following tone is a reference tone recorded at our operating level
2: from Captain Beefheart and his magic band there's so many fabulous groups over on the west coast aren't there John they're doing so many different things there are indeed
4: beautiful groups and they all have nice things to do and none of them ever get heard except of course on Top Gear
0: except of course on Top Gear (laughs) right (laughs) Gentle Cat so that's uh, there is a different tone isn't there early on tell us about that Dave
1: well what What intrigued me and what made me think that maybe there's a book in this was that he does sound like two completely different human beings at the beginning and end of his career as a British broadcaster he's clearly not he's the same guy Um, but maybe he had different outlooks and values, maybe the times were sufficiently different that he made sense in the context of what he's saying there Um, and so uh, I, I, I just thought well if Peel is a chameleon, um, then it's worth following him through all the, the, the different phases and that gets him from psychedelia to punk to drum and bass to grindcore or whatever. Um, clearly, he is the same person for, for the duration of his life, but maybe he, we all change. And I think. Do you he, think there's
2: one particular thing he was looking for? It's really interesting in the book that you find him championing all these groups that some he stuck with and, and still played later on, and some he's appalled by. You know the Eric Claptons, the Mark Bolands. Um, you know, he's just ashamed that he ever liked them. But is there something uh, all the way through that would have excited? You? Was it about the, the the newness of what he was doing,
1: or just something I, I adventurous he, about them? Or? I think he may have had a strange attitude towards the past. You may not remember, but you sent me to his house once to interview him for Select Magazine. Yes, I did, yeah. Um, because there was a his manager, Clive Selwood, was putting out a box set on this little label he had strange fruit, fruit. that 's right, and there weren 't that many c d box sets out at the time, so we thought this looks quite interesting it wasn 't peel sessions, but it was peel it was bands that Peel had first played, and some of them were from the sixties like cream or whoever, and then into the punk years, and then the Mary Chain and the Pogues and the wedding present and so on, so it seemed fairly comprehensive and I went down to Suffolk to speak to him. He, he you know he immediately wasn't interested in this box set he, he pretended that he didn't know that it was coming out he said that he wasn't going to be playing it he was much more interested in in what was going to be in the next show and it had something to do and i've never got to the bottom of him and i wasn't his biographer but my suspicion is that he 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 just he was a nostalgic person maybe in private but when it came to music um, he wanted to co- constantly draw a line under what had happened and uh, and almost deny. He, he had a way of telling anecdotes about people, and Trevor will know when DJs tell anecdotes about famous stars, they make sure they're in those anecdotes, you know, with the arm around the star at Stringfell's. Peel had a way of telling stories about Bowie and Boland. He didn't even appear in the anecdotes. He was modest to the point of almost nullifying his existence in these people's careers. Not only was he not taking credit for um, the impact he'd had on British music, when, after all, he, more than any DJ in the history of Radio 1, could claim that he'd had an impact on British music, but he was almost writing himself out of history,
2: he was very wounded when those two people, in particular, she, he felt abandoned. Him. Bowie you know, and Bolan. Yeah, they moved on to better
1: things. I don't. Got, I, I don't think Bowie was particularly um, wounding to him because they were never close man. friends. Bowie just sort of drifted away from him. But Bolan, who was his best yeah. friend, yeah. excommunicated him. Yeah. yeah. But bear in mind that Bolan wasn't just being a prick. Peel had told Bolan that his new songs were shit. He was. He played. <laughs> He played Get It On and said, get it on. I couldn't wait to get it off. Uh, He was going, Mark, what are you doing? All these number one hits. You had it. Sitting on a carpet with an acoustic guitar. While while Steve Peregrine tapped away at the bongos. That was it, Mark. You've blown blown the formula, Mark. All this success and fame. Yeah, so... uh,
0: There's two two things I just want to pick up here.
1: Um, That's Dandelion, the hamster, I think. Is it Dandelion? Yeah. Well, I was
0: looking at this picture last night, and I thought, I know the name of that hamster. (laughs) And I thought it was Dandelion. I thought it was Biscuit. Oh, Christ, yeah, you might be right I think it's Biscuit. (laughs) Now, all I'm saying is... These hamsters all look alike. John Peel built in it. How was the night about John Peel? Two people argued about the name of his hamster. We had a brilliant
2: time. (laughs)
0: a serious point here it's a serious point because you know he made a feature of not being a radio personality and became the biggest radio personality of all i don't know the pet, name of the pets of any other radio one djs uh, the key
4: to to him that, that helped me unlock him when i produced his radio show and, and then later was his boss at radio one was it began to dawn on me that there's John Ravenscroft, and then there's John Peel, and John Peel is an invention of John Ravenscroft. You know, he goes off to America, and he has to call himself John Ravencroft when he's on the radio, um, pretending that he comes from Liverpool, whereas actually he comes from the Wirral, which is where the, that bizarre accent comes from. It's it's a, a boy from public school trying to sound like George Harrison. Um, uh, but then he comes back to England, and they give him this name uh, on pirate radio. You could call yourself. John Peel, they say. So off he goes to be John Peel. And I think John Peel is the character who played the records and was looking for something different all the time, uh, hated the idea that whether it was Janice Long or Kid Jensen or Richard Skinner might find a record before he did. And so he pushed the boundaries and t- t- to the point where he's playing unlistenable stuff. Um, but meanwhile, there was John Ravenscroft, who was the guy who Loved his family very, very much. It's, it's, if you ever, met, you know, met him for more than ten minutes, that's what he wanted to talk about. Apart from Liverpool Football Club, was his was his his, his wife and kids, and he, he had the perfect family home. He he would work very hard at almost anything uh, to to keep them in the uh, in the style in which he thought they they had grown accustomed, and eventually, before he died, the real John Ravenscroft emerged doing Home Truths. I think that was more the real John that we, that we heard for 20 years of him playing records on Radio 1.
1: With respect, uh, I would just like to say one thing. I don't, I don't think it's so much that they were Jekyll and Hyde. I think what if Mick Houghton is here tonight, um, Mick and I did the Wimbledon Book Festival a couple of Sundays ago, and Darren Heyman from Hefner was there, and Darren... Uh, did a session once from Peel Acres, and I said, Well, how'd you get on with Peel? And you know, did you become friends? He said it was really difficult to become friends with him because he wouldn't talk about music. The only person who seemed to relate to him from our band was the drummer who was a football fan. I think music for Peel was a private world and had been since Shrewsbury School. And I think The Peel Show was two hours of him letting us into his private world. Didn't mean that he necessarily told us what he thought of all those records. Sometimes he would make weirdly jokey comments about them that made you wonder if he'd even listen to them. Uh, but he was listening to them, and they affected him very deeply. And sometimes, as in the case of Roy Orbison or the Bunju Boys or whoever, he would cry or the undertones, teenage kicks.
2: You... So that's a really good point, because I, I, I think that I spent the night uh, once down at his place, I was interviewing him and uh, watched him do his show, and we sat up till three o'clock in the morning playing records, and he cried twice. He, he, uh, Trevor will, oh, yeah, he, he's he, cried he, all he, the time. Yeah, it was always he, a blood fest with cried. John. He cried, he said, I'm going to play you the greatest rock I've ever made. Which yeah. is a standard old joke of ours, actually. The greatest rock I've ever made, in his case, was Frankie and Johnny by uh, Lonnie Donegan, and he put it on, and he was in floods of tears, three in the morning. <laughs> And there's a lovely bit in your book where he plays Sergeant Pepper for the first time, cries all the way through listening to it. It's brilliant. And then plays, um, you know, Day of the Life. You know,
1: he was a lonely, isolated boy in a 1950s boarding school who didn't know anybody who shared his taste in music. That's a long time to be isolated. And then when he went to, to Dallas when he was about 23, I think... 21, or, uh, yeah. 21, yeah. he set up some speakers. I remember him
2: telling me he set some speakers by the bus stop wired up to his record player, and he would sit there all day playing his favourite record. It's just evangelicals, the word, really. Yeah. Wanting to see people waiting for the bus... Excited by the records he's playing, were mostly records by people like uh, Carl Perkins, probably, and you know, all rock and roll records. And that that kind of, so you had that evangelism of wanting to play on national radio to to call a million people. And I know people you know, who sat so a very competitive
1: thing. But I know see people who sat in on his show. Friends of mine who you know were fans of his and managed to um, sit in on on Peel programs. And he was, you know, he was he didn't like them being there. He needed that private relationship. Now, Bruno... That's really,
0: really true. He hated that. That's a really interesting point. They had a private relationship because my only anecdote took place in Tokyo, Japan. At the end of... I'd gone with BBC television. He was with BBC Radio to do a week of programmes in Tokyo. And after working very hard for a week, there was a last night booze-up in what I can only describe as a disco. And... Everybody was letting their hair down in front of a load of Japanese people that you were never going to see again in your life. Peel's wife was there. Johnny Bailing, boss of Radio 1 at the time, was there. Mike Ableton was there. All the production staff were there. They were on the dance floor, giving it loads to whatever was the hit of the time. Could they get John Peel onto that dance floor? Could his wife get him onto that dance floor? No. Because that was locked away inside. That he couldn't bring himself... To enjoy music in the most natural way that you can possibly enjoy it, which is dancing. It's what most people do. Because he had to be this... He'd learned that it was this internal thing. And your response was tears very often, more than anything else. And
1: don't forget, he didn't get to see as many gigs as we would have done, because he would have been on the air at the time that they were starting. Morrissey, in his autobiography... Actually gives Peel quite a hard time He's saying, you know, call yourself a Smiths fan, you never saw us live. But it's because Smith went on stage just as Peel was in Egton yeah. House or wherever starting his show. He he probably saw four or five gigs a year.
4: I thought I might tell you how he used to put his show together, in case people don't know this. Yeah, of um I produced him for about seven months, I think, in nineteen eighty-three, because they'd given me the equivalent of the death sentence at Radio 1 which is, you are producing Simon Bates (laughs) and uh, fortunately I'd applied for a job in the television which I then got, so they said okay, well you can't go obviously straight away so um, we can't have a temporary producer for Simon so tell you what, we'll take Chris Lisey off the uh, Peel show and he can do Simon and you can do Peel for a few months, he won't mind well of course he did, he was very cross about this I made friends with him very quickly by saying how does the running order come together then John because I knew that he picked all the records and he said well basically I go through the albums and I put star ratings on the sleeves and I time all the tracks and then John Walters or Chris Lyce's as it was then will go through the uh, list that I've given them and basically if they see two records with, a, with the word fire in them they put them together they think that's very clever and he was very dismissive about how they put these running orders together so I said well why don't you do it he said oh, really he was genuinely pleased that I'd let him do this whereas I was thinking well you know, he's a DJ, he's yeah. picked all these bloody records, he ought to put them in order, they'll sound much better. And he was childishly happy about this. And it gave me so much pleasure over that few months. And just one final point, I think I'm one of the few people who got a request, or a dedication, rather, on The Peel Show, because when I left, so I'd had this kind of fiery relationship with him, saying, I know you want to play new stuff, but why don't you occasionally play old stuff that your new listeners have never heard, and which is new to them? And he said, no, "No, no, I can't do that. I can't do that." And then, when I left, but the last record on the last show I produced uh, was uh, "Interstellar Overdrive,"
0: <laughs> which he thought was, uh, you know, was was what making you, an effort. What do you think, Mark? I mean, because you you sat in for him, didn't yeah. you? I did. You know, even though he watched you through the glass like a hawk, <laughs> in case you were pinching his job. <laughs> Oh, have I told that? Do I
2: have? I'm like, I, yeah. I, I was, d- did his show. I was very, very nervous. Um, terrified, actually. Do you know what was, he said uh, about you? Don't, 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 don't tell No, he me. just said he talks too much. Uh, yeah. retar- no. from, from him? No, Coming from him? <laughs> Would anybody argue come, about Come here and say that. <laughs> yeah. No, I did his show, and on the first night he arrived, and I was told he was on holiday, he arrived, and I could see him looking through the glass. I had even met him once for a huge hero of mine, so I was completely overcome. Put on a 12-inch record to buy a lot bit of time. I went out to talk to him and he looked at the microphone and he said, he said, it's like letting somebody borrow your toothbrush or sleep with your wife. (laughs) I.e. me doing his show. That's how strongly he
0: felt about it. But my God... no." So I was going to ask a question. What made him so good as just a simple G- DJ, regardless of the music he played. Oh, right. Well, that's, that a, that's, a, that's a really good question. The, the radio one at the time,
2: actually still suffering from this a little bit, was going through what I, I suppose you would call a zoo format thing. There's a, a Steve Wright who's still there, actually. You started to do a show where he had a, a gang around at the posse. And it became a thing where you talked to people all the time. You talked to the people in the room, and effectively people were just eavesdropping on a show that was going on, which isn't a very intimate relationship. And Peel, more than anyone else I've ever understood, really understood the nature of late night radio. It's an amazing thing and I've done quite a bit of it actually. It's amazing how it changes from 10 o'clock to midnight and beyond. 3 in the morning incredible. At 10 o'clock at night, the people you're talking to are often listening to the radio on their own. They're on their own. They're trying to do some homework or they're trying to read a book or they're in bed and they're trying to go to sleep or they're operating machinery or they're driving a cab. They're on their own. And that incredible intimacy is extraordinary. He really, really understood the idea of saying these things as if he was talking to simply one person. And every phrase, Dave mentions this in his book that people used to listen to the programme by the end to hear what he had to say. They were almost more interested in the way he expressed himself, that incredibly convoluted.
4: Can we um, hear the clip where so, he
0: starts
2: off
4: talking about Liverpool? Have you um, got that? Yeah, I think it's 1982. It's Liverpool, the beginning I mean, of a show that, where Terry. Forrest and Liverpool have just played. <laughs>
0: I guess who's back on top of the first division tonight it sounds like a blinder of a match Forrest leading 3-2 at half
4: time at Anfield Liverpool 1-4-3 in the end Hodgson 2 Sooness, and Rush
0: and anyway into the programme we've got the Sisters of Mercy and uh, the Beat amongst the records Comsat Angels the Gun Club a little surf music because I like you Red Lorry Yellow Lorry Lee Perry Hunters and Collectors Personal Column Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft Ludus Birthday Party French Impressionists The Mad Professor Meet Puppets Sunnier a Day and to start the programme I'm Dead
4: or Alive. <laughs> <laughs> now, by any standard that's that? terrible, isn't it? You know, that breaks all the rules, and yet it's really... But it's really, but it's really you know.
0: thought about, isn't it? There's a little surf music, because I like, like you. You, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it's, he's composed it, and we've got it written down but, as well. You know,
4: he used to invent a band that he, he used to interpolate into these introductions. It were called the Flying Cream Shots, because he'd once seen this phrase in a Dutch porno mag... And, so, and he used to say the red lorry, yellow flying cream shots.
2: And it, oh, That's, <laughs> That's just a joke for him, you know, to amuse himself. Also, another thing I thought was very funny about the way he did is he used to just that way he spoke, that convoluted way he spoke. That, in a sense, if I'm any judge, you know, uh, you know, which has not yet been proved to any conclusive degree. You know, what he was actually doing was buying time because sometimes he didn't really know what record he was going to play,
0: and he would just talk. And but filmed. he always sounded as if he did. Yeah, it became. A- he always sounds as if he knew exactly where it was going. Yeah. But even though, as you as you say, he must have be he must have been buying time like anybody was. The so- punk thing was Sorry. very
1: important because um, the brevity of the songs, or the violence of the delivery, or something, the immediacy of the message really did change the way that he broadcast. And there were uh, many examples of shows around seventy five, early seventy six where i started to get very impatient listening to him um there was one towards the end of 75 where he's playing his top 15 singles of the year and the theme tune plays and he says um well tonight um, i'm going to be playing the uh the 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 best 50 well so what i consider to be the best uh 15 record well certainly singles of uh of the year and uh uh, I hope you'll find it interesting. You may not, of course, but... Uh, but uh, And you're just thinking, it's your fucking programme. Take control. Assert yourself, for Christ's sake. You've lost them. It's 19 seconds into the programme and they're fucking drifting away. But, anyway, so... But that was him. He was just so incredibly kind of oh, apologetic about... but from punk onwards then it was thanks for listening good night and good riddance
0: now throughout the career he, he was a festival fixture wasn't he, he wasn't he turning he, up yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. he playing Nelly the Elephant at Reading yeah. Festival yeah, and, and so forth mm-hmm. and he, lo- he
4: loved doing it although he always used to complain didn't he yeah. he, 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 he always used to say oh I've got to do this and, oh, the, the Peel Roadshow and all this but of course actually uh, one of the things that he did it for was he made a lot of money and Because uh, you didn't make any money really as a BBC DJ. In so, those how much would you
0: have been making? We're not oh, ge- this I'm, is, I'm not this is not commercial guess. confidence. In, in 1980, how much would John Peel have been making out of radio? 1980. Away? Yeah. He might have got.
1: It was on four nights a week. He was four nights a week. He had 200 a show. <sighs> That's oh. terrible. And by then, he had three kids. So
4: that's why he did the ads, yeah. Yeah. you know, all the other things. But well,
1: he didn't, he, he, that's why he went around the country in the John Peel Roadshow, yeah. yeah. just doing kind of discos, but the only thing about that was that inevitably he'd come on, he'd come back with 20 more demo tapes than he'd had before he'd left the house, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which he felt obliged to listen to.
2: Why? See, that's the deal. Why did... Because he did. When I went to his house, he had a big pile of jiffy bags yeah. that he taught... And there were people would send, I, when I did the show, I've still got some in the attic. Oh, people would send fanzines, cassette tapes, then poems, and he felt obliged to write back to all of them.
1: I think it starts with a show in August 1977, which a lot of people... Aficionados know as the second punk special, and the significance of that is unlike the first punk special, which was December 76 and was a response to the Grundy incident, when there were very few British punk singles only two, in fact The Pistols and The Damned by August 77, there were loads, and they were coming from all over Britain, not just London. So he played two hours worth of British punk, 38 songs in two hours. And the significant thing... Well, two significant things. Most of them were from bands outside London and a lot of them were from bands who'd set up their own record labels. They weren't going to go to EMI or Chrysalis or Polydor. They were just going to... They'd read about the desperate bicycles doing it themselves or the buzzcocks and they thought, we can do this. And John Peel made it absolutely clear to these bands, send them to me, I'll put you on the radio and that's where his life... The Peel Show and the lives of so many indie, post-punk, and punk bands changed forever. But that's suddenly what kept him in
4: business, actually, with the BBC because they could then wheel him out in front of any, you know, committee, ha- committee House of Commons investigation,
0: that's BBC Charter creation. review. Well, it's community service, isn't it? It's community public service. service radio, isn't it? Yeah, it was there, public
4: right? service radio, and there was the, the you know, the BBC. Um, uh, looking after young artists in a way that commercial radio didn't.
0: Yeah, yeah.
4: And so they they might bury him away in the middle of the night, but the BBC needed him for many, many years so that they could sort they so were a cultural
2: patron. What was going on in those daytime shows. He, he had this absolute loathing for Dave Lee Travis. <laughs> Who well, I noticed you do too in your book actually Do I? <laughs> Who? Funny? Do I? I? I think I think you went rather went on about how you didn't like it
1: yet. But I, uh, I don't remember him hating DRT. I remember him calling Simon Bates Simon Beast which is an anagram of his surname oh right
2: Very but, good. Uh, but he wanted to be seen to be doing things differently because he knew that a lot of those guys didn't listen to the records may we
4: play them. the Christmas party yeah. clip this, this is uh, uh, John Peel at the Radio 1 Christmas Panto where he's reading something which they've given him to read and is this I think a it's Snow White it's a Snow White I think it's really interesting that they've given him a line to read about how his show is enjoyed by schoolgirls Okay, so there's, a, there's, there's, there's something going on in, in here, but just, just, just listen to what he says.
2: Hello, fans. Snow White's the name. You all must know my claim to fame.
4: I live inside a woodland den, alone except for seven men. With all these males around the house, it is not rare to hear them grouse. We're bored and want something to do. So I bought each one a radio. Oh, dear. They each became the greatest fan of just one BBC programme. They'd hurry up the evening meal lest they should miss the great John Peel. His top gear is a wondrous thing, all shimmering in greens and reds, a witching screen of melody, beloved of schoolgirls, freaks and Teds. He himself is modest, kind, a rugged, daring, lovely man. To his true worth, he remains as blind... As only
0: a Liverpool supporter can. So that was the personality they decide they, they kind of designed for him. So, but he, so he was always throughout his career. He always felt that he was he was going to get the chop at any time, but it never happened, did it? No, it never
4: happened. Uh, largely because I think, as I say, he was wheeled out uh, as the cultural patron, uh, but also because. Um, everybody liked him you know even though he was a difficult man he was uh, as david said he was a difficult man to like um he had this that fantastic um, relationship with john walters where one of them said of the other we 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 like a man and his dog in which both of us think the other one's the dog uh, and um But I think in in the end, he he uh, he was the guy nobody dared to get rid of. You know, Matthew Banister certainly would have never got rid of him. Neither would Andy Parfitt. Everybody loved him because of partly what he was and partly what he had
2: been. It's hard to imagine, but he would be actually. I'm just working out. He's 76 now. I mean, do you think he would still be at
1: Radio One at 76? No,
4: I don't. But I do think I think he'd have moved to Radio Two. Yeah, uh, and I think he'd be big on Radio Four. I truly
1: what, do what, what, what I want you... to know sorry yeah. you two did Live Aid did you ever hear any kind of whisper of John Peel being asked to do Live Aid he, would have, he was the only person who'd ever played African music on Radio 1 and yet he wasn't even involved in
2: Live I Aid I don't think they asked he, him they, he wouldn't do it and I think he probably well he was asked and wouldn't do it yeah oh really was he okay well that's interesting
1: I was going to ask you,
2: Dave, one thing. There was was a major change, which you were alluding to earlier on, actually, when when they put on this programme with Dave uh, Kid jensen I think, was presenting it, and then it was Janice Longfield, between 8 and 10. And that really stole a little bit of his thunder, because at that point he was playing, you know, Wah Heat and, I don't know, The Pale Fountains and, I don't know, all sorts of groups, Orange Juice, whatever. And suddenly those things were then being played by them. And... At that point, he was pushed further up the scale to find more and more challenging stuff. And do you feel, Dave, because you, you've listened to many more of these programs than I have, do you feel that he was then often just putting on things because he felt that they were a story, that they were, you know, Einstein said to Neubau, you know, people <laughs> drilling the concrete floors of, 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 of dance halls. Do you think he enlightened
1: or just thought it was an art statement that should be encouraged? If there's one thing that I think connects every single piece of music that he ever played it's not the fact that he liked them all it's the fact that he had an instinctive sense of when they deserved to be played on the radio now that's different from liking it um and if he felt that this piece of music whether it be old new obscure unheard of uncommercial whatever from any part of the world uh he was playing indigenous folk music on night ride in 1968 Uh, He was playing 78s in 2003. Whatever it was, if he felt that it merited, and merit was a word that he used, if this record had merit and deserved to be played on the radio, he knew enough about Radio 1 to know that nobody else would play it except possibly Andy Kershaw during that period in the mid-'80s. So it might as well be him, and it might as well be tonight.
2: There was a guy he told me about called, I think it was called Mertzbo. I don't know if you pronounce it. Yes. And Mertzbow had a, a, a three day event at a, a Colchester Arts Centre where he played all the music he'd ever recorded. It took three days, 24 hours a day, to do it. And Peel, I think, actually
1: opened this event. He
2: didn't stay for more than 20 minutes of the three days of music,
1: but he did open it, and he wanted to support that. And I like that idea. Yeah, but also, I, I don't agree with this unlistenable stuff. There's no such thing as unlistenable music. There's just people who don't want to listen to it. So Peel was a person who listened. He got into work at some ridiculous hour of the morning, first time I ever met him, He said, well, if you get here at 8 o'clock, and I thought he meant 8 o'clock in the evening, two hours before his show started. No, he meant 8 o'clock in the morning because he'd spent the night at his mother's flat in Notting Hill and he got in that hour of the morning and we had breakfast and I said what are you doing now and he said well I'm you know listening to records you know trying to find two or three last minute inclusions to put into tonight's show
2: and would occasionally jump on his bike and bicycle down to Rough Trade Records well, of
1: course yeah. Records. yeah well it would definitely go to HMV or the local or was... the lo- you know tower existed in yeah. those days CDs had just come in so the, his post bag would have been enormous without him even having to look for records but he did that he, he felt that that was part so, of his job
0: so if he was still with us he'd be what did we say 76? 76 76 30.
1: and by the way i believe he still would be on radio one because if no, you think if you think of the twitter outcry if they tried to sack him that's when bowie so elton just... rod all of them would come out of the woodwork so you
0: think he'd still be on radio yes. one I thinks he'd be on radio four yeah. i think I if only knew music. anything about cricket he'd be on test match special <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely he'd brilliant still be doing home truth. Yeah. well uh, okay yeah well it's um uh, and he's, uh, you know, he's a figure who, who continues to uh, to fascinate us all, and his heritage is immensely powerful. And uh, he's is recorded in this in this book, uh, "Good Night and Good Riddance: How 35 Years of John Peel Helped Shape Modern Britain," which uh, Dave, I'm sure, would be happy to sign a copy for you on your way out. W- would you now just thank Trevor Dan and Dave Gavin?